This is unstructured. Today I have Richard Decker. Richard Decker is, he has a Bachelor of Science in Psychology with Criminal Justice, a Master of Science in Public Safety with Criminal Justice. And I perceive that your current position is corporate security. Would that be a fair assessment? Uh, that's part of it. Yeah, we um, are actually teaching classes on active shooters, what to do in in buildings where a shooter walks in and starts taking control of the scene. My wife actually works um, for a company that warehouses um, coffee, and the warehouse across the street, an employee walked in a month ago and shot another employee. And wow. yeah, and that was like a little too close to home for me. So we developed classes on um, active shooter awareness, insider threat, domestic violence awareness, and other um, conceptualizations along those same line to make any work environment safer and more reactive to in a way that everybody safety is most likely to occur instead of a death. I mean, it, it's security, but it's more so of um, let's get you the hell out of there alive. Okay. So obviously, um, so you have a specialization in active shooter situations, which and if we follow the news at all, I think, what was it? Two days ago, we had a press room that just got shot up. Correct. Right. Um, obviously, this is a very big concern for companies. Is it limited to strictly that or is it to help um, prevent violence be before it even happens? Do you deal with anything like that? Yes, that's the hope. The hope is, is that, you know, we are able to teach in these classes what people are seeing, what they're looking at with their coworkers, the dynamics, you know, any population you have an in-group and an out-group, okay? Mm -hmm. And that's subdivided into so many directions that it's too much of a thing to, to try and talk about on a, on a short show or in, other than a 20-page dissertation sure. about it, okay? But you look at all the dynamics in a workplace and you try and develop a perception of if Joe comes in mad as hell for two, three days in a row, and he's not acting like he's normally acts at work, mm -hmm. that, that's a red flag. Something's going on in, in his life to, to watch, you know, or someone that comes into work and starts swearing or um, using verbiage that demeans their own personality towards somebody. Mm -hmm. Um, like my wife had a situation in her workplace. She's a, a, a manager and, um, the guy had said, well, you're just making me your grunt. Mm -hmm. And she was just asking him to do his job. And after about four or five days of this, I told her, I said, you need to watch this boy. He's going to go off. And mm -hmm. two weeks later he did, he threw stuff all over the warehouse and walked out the front door. Fortunately, nobody was hurt, but those are the kind of things that we try to teach people to, that they can look for this stuff so that they know that this is a red flag. How, how would, absolutely. So these uh, triggering behaviors or whatever you might call them, how do you mitigate them or what would you recommend just get away from them? Um, well, that's difficult because you can't always get away from them because of the type of environment that you're in. Mm -hmm. But obviously distances is, is the best thing, but um, you have to, you have to report this to people and not be afraid to go to human resources, not be afraid to go to a manager. And the problem with is that a lot of these people are going to be retaliatory. So from a management perspective, maybe giving that guy a couple of days off, you know, get him routed to mental health or something like that, you know, give him a counselor, somebody to talk to, but not all places have those resources. 
depending sure. on the size of the of the um the the employment you know like um one of my clients was a, a funeral home and mm -hmm. um they have six people so they don't have the resources to like google does you know to, to go send you over right. to um right. but they had told me also that somebody had walked in with a hammer talking to them swinging this hammer kind of like up and down and they didn't know what to do and i'm like well your first option was to get the hell out of here get mm -hmm. out get out of the environment but she felt trapped because they had a desk between them which was good she had a exit that she could have taken but she didn't think about that sure okay. so we have to develop that thought mentality um to get them to start thinking in advance and be aware of their environment also watching other co-workers and you know sometimes just sitting down with a co-worker and saying hey listen rick um i noticed something's going on Are you okay can be enough to mitigate that future event from happening mm -hmm. am i making sense absolutely so okay. giving a a slight bit of human contact can help de-escalate things before it, they happen. It can, but if you do it incorrectly, it's going to escalate it. It depends on, you know, you have to set the right demeanor and right environment. I mean, some people are just too far gone and the body language we usually tell, you know, where somebody's at. Like if we were to meet face to face, Eric, okay. Mm -hmm. The first thing I would do is um, I'd watch your eyes because if your eyes dilate, that means you're receptive to me, but if mm -hmm. they constrict, that means you perceive me as a threat. Mm. Okay. So that those are some of the things in body language I watch. Like if they sit with their arms crossed, you know, they're tip tapping their fingers that they no, normally don't, they're fidgety. They're normally not that way. Those are some things that I watch for when I go interview people mm -hmm. um, and um, to kind of give me an idea where they might be going. And the more agitated people become, the more active they become. They Their facial expressions change. Their eyes twitch a little bit more. They're looking to go do something. You can tell that when somebody's about ready to attack or make a move that is normally not socially acceptable, if you watch their body, you can tell something's about to happen. Okay. So just be open and aware. Right. When I used to train detectives, I used to tell them, you know, when I have my detective agency, you have to be aware of your environment. If I sat in a Burger King with you and ask you who were the last five people behind the counter, you need to be able to tell me. And I know people not in law enforcement and public service say, well, you know, you're being a little paranoid. Well, okay, maybe so, but my paranoia is going to keep me alive. It's awareness. And in today's society, you never know who's going to walk in and do what. Right. So are you saying essentially if something feels weird, just assume it is and maybe get away I, just as a baseline survival instinct? I would. You know, if it, if it looks like a duck, it's a duck. So you could be wrong, but you'd rather be wrong and away from something than correct and involved in the situation. Absolutely. So now let's go back a little bit and – you have kind of an interesting path in history getting here. I, I understand you were in the military. What, what did you do in there? That's, I don't talk about my military service because too many people base their entire career on military service. Um, I, I don't talk about it as a rule. Okay. And from there, you were a paramedic? I did paramedic work, yep, for t about 12 years. Ran 911. Oh, okay. So you actually worked the phones or you were out? Or, no, I was or in the street. Or... I was oh, in okay. the street. I worked the street. And where was that? I worked in Amarillo, Texas and Chicago, Illinois. Wow, quite a range. What brought you back and forth between the locations? Chicago was home. Got okay. out of the service, went to paramedic school. First job that was offered to me was in Amarillo. Went mm. there. Um, wanted to go back home. So applied for jobs back home and went back home. Now you were in it for 12 years. What made you decide to leave it? 
I almost killed the lady. What? I almost killed the lady. I was um burnt out, just burnt out. And um had a lady that um I almost I almost gave her the wrong dose of medicine because I had been on my third shift for the week. We were tired as hell running and I just happened to catch that I almost overdosed her on morphine. Oh my God. And got her to the, the hospital and um, went to the station, packed up my stuff, told my supervisor, said, I'm done. I walked out. Wow. That's wow. I don't blame you. And I'm, I'm glad that you caught it. Yeah, me too. It wouldn't have been something I would wanted to live with for the rest of my life. But, you know, the thing with EMS and firefighters is they all overwork themselves or stressed as it is. And it's always push, 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 push. You've got to know when to draw the line in the sand and say, you know, next, let's go to a different career. Let's start over. I know people right now that are in the service that are in their 40s and 50s and they don't know what to do. They know they need to get out but they don't know how and they're burnout. They're cynical and they're tired. Wow. So it is a, a problem within the industry. Is it being short staffed and things like that? Or it's a multitude of things. You know, there's always turnover and, and fire service, police and EMS. And, you know, like in Berkeley County over here, they're constantly looking for EMTs and paramedics running short staffed double shifts, you know, it's everywhere, you know, so it's a problem. I wonder if the um, opioid epidemic is, is causing even more of a stress. Well, it's a good theory and possible, but, you know, you, it is going to be different for every individual based on their environment and their dynamics in their lives. You know, it's not every one paramedic or EMS or law enforcement that's going to have the same dynamic of stressors that's going to cause their burdens. Mm -hmm. It's going to be different for everybody. So to sit there and say that it's one epidemic or this thing, that's that's tribal to try and say, you know, because even when we look at stressors and things like post-traumatic growth and trying to conceptualize healing somebody from stressors that would develop cause post-traumatic stress. We have to look at all their dynamics within their lives to even try and conceptualize a framework to get them from point A to point B. Sure. And I, I'm not trying to oversimplify. No, no, no. I I think another big factor is probably the aging boomers that you have a, a huge population and a much smaller population to care for them. That's true. That's true. You have greater health concerns um, with those, with baby boomers and with, with anybody. I mean, you get into law enforcement and fire service, EMS, et cetera. You have a high increase of people trying to deal with stress and they self-medicate instead of going to a doctor because they're afraid of losing their job if they go to a doctor Mm -hmm. Um, because of the dynamics of, you know, they talk about the thin blue line in law enforcement, but I'm going to tell you, there's a thin red line in, EMS and fire service that they don't want to go talk to anybody either because they don't want anybody to think they're nuts. Mm. They don't want to lose their jobs. We're all concerned in our society about what everybody else is going to think. And mental illness is one of the most prevalent diseases in our society, but it's the only disease that we blame the person for. Hmm. instead of blaming the organic matter in their in their body because having a mental illness is no different than contracting diabetes sure it involves the organs it's sure. not necessarily person however it de- the brain is the one thing that we use to conceptualize what makes us mm-hmm. so we blame the person instead of the organ 
I've often had a strange theory about that because it, there's a shame involved with mental illness, I think, yeah. in our society. And I've wondered if maybe a solution would be to force everybody into um, mental care where then you can actually get the help, but everybody knows that everybody has to do it and it's private. So I know it sounds kind of weird, but it's just sort of like, okay, go spend that hour or whatever it is every week with these people. And ho hopefully maybe some things can be found or maybe they reveal. Well, you know, it's a stigmatism and it's a societal stigmatism and we can't, you know, you and I both know we can't go force people to go get treatment. That's like, you know, saying a few years ago, the administration said everybody has to have insurance, kind of forcing everybody sure, to buy sure. insurance. You can't do that. But what you can do is try and reduce stigmatism. The biggest problem in our society with bias is the stigmas that we present within our own in-group about an out-group. Mm -hmm. And all these stigmas correlate and start within the one unit that is used to be constant in our society and that's the family right that's where bias and stigmatism starts is in Tribal. family right you know i don't care what color you are what ethnicity you are you have stigmas about out groups mm -hmm. okay and we put those into the world the only way to get reduce the issue with mental illness is awareness i think and get people to say hey you know what it's okay to have a problem. I have PTSD. I, um, I was on a bunch of medications for a long time. Mm -hmm. And when EMDR first came out, it's now a, a three-month process. And I went through it for six months with a friend of mine at church. What is that? EMDR, eye movement rapid desensitization. Um, it's a way of dealing with stress and going through working. They take you back through the scenarios. And okay. it's a different way of processing. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it's 97% effective. Wow. Where medication is 50, 50, 30, you know, right. type thing. Um, and it, it's um, a good way of starting to deal with it is, is acknowledging it. But we have a tendency of packing that stuff to the back of our head, trying to forget and which causes, a, as you know, a whole lot of dynamics. And because sure. we, we really don't forget, we just don't deal with it. And it's because of the stigmas that are put out in our society. Right. And if you bottle it up and compartmentalize, it eventually comes out. Right. You know, no matter what you do, it's going to come out at some point. And then when it does, it's unfortunate that it usually comes out in a violent act, homicide, beating the crap out of somebody, you know ruining lives now from being a paramedic you quit suddenly and you became a private investigator after that yeah that is something i always i had always wanted to do something to make a difference i didn't want to be a cop and um i saw a need with um within the judicial system that i knew there were investigators out there i knew people that did defense investigations, but that wasn't all they did. They did other private investigator work, like following the spouse and digging through trash and all that kind of crap. Mm -hmm. And that's not what I wanted to do. So I started an agency where all I did was criminal defense. That was it. That was the only thing that my agency did was criminal defense. We handed, we did probably... 50 trials a year, you know, did like one year we did a hundred cases uh, and it grew from there. I had other detectives that I trained and worked for me. Um, so we were, we were busy. What, what was the process to become a um, private investigator? It depends on the state that you're in here in South Carolina. You just, it's ridiculous. You just, you pay a, a fee and, um, they in, make you intern for four years with another licensed investigator. And then you're a PI where I was, was in Wisconsin. I had to take testing. Uh, so to prepare for that, I actually went to paralegal school, took a certificate program in paralegals um, back in 
God, it was 91, 92, something like mm-hmm. that. And um, prepared for the test, went and had to take the test to pass. Um, but like uh, last time I heard Louisiana was one of the states where you just took a sign, hung it outside, said PI and you went to work, you know? Hmm. So it, it's a variable between each state. California is extremely stringent. Um, but it just depends on where you're at. Wow. What would you, okay. Never mind the state thing. You as a former private investigator who trained private investigators, what would you recommend that somebody does to not only become a private investigator, but to become a quality private investigator? Well, I think the more diversified a person is, the better investigator they're going to have. They're going to be. However, just saying, Hey, I want to be an investigator does not make, an investigator, you have to be able to think critically, think outside the box. You have to be able to develop a very quick rapport with people. Can you give me an example? Case in point. I had did an internship with the public defender's office with the state of Wisconsin when I first started. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, um, they took me out with their chief investigator and we were investigating a robbery, um, home robbery. And we went to go see the victim and Steve walked up to the guy and said, Hey, you know, my name's Steve. I'm with public defender's office. I'm here to talk to you about so-and-so who, um, broke into your house. And the guy said, I'm not talking to you. And I kind of looked around the corner of his house and I said, Hey, listen, can I ask you a question about your tomatoes? <laughs> he said, my tomatoes. I said, yeah. I said, I've never seen anything grow like that. And you're growing them upside down. He Hmm. goes, right. I said, so can you tell me how you did that? So he started talking about it. And he said, well, son, what's your name? I shook his hand. I said, Rick, he goes, you want coffee, Rick? I said, yeah, but you know, I'm with him, right? He goes, well, I'll talk to you, but I won't talk to him. Hmm. And I walked in and got the statement that we needed because I bonded with that individual. I let them know I was there, not just because of what happened to them, but I wanted to hear from him how that made him feel. Mm. Okay. Okay. Along with what needing to know what I wanted to know for trial. If you cannot develop those type of attitudes, bond with people and do it naturally. Some people do it naturally. Some people it's forced and you can tell when it's forced. If you don't have that type of personality, don't become a detective because you're not going to make it. If you so curiosity. Respect and curiosity. I think, you know, you have to show compassion and um, respect the people that you're talking to, not just treat them like a number or revictimize them because they're already been a victim. Okay. That's fair. And what else would you do? I think education is something that nobody can take away from you. Mm-hmm. But not education doesn't always mean that you're going to um, go to formal school. Okay. It can come in internships can come in um, a variety of ways, experiences in your life. And as long as you can identify with people and have a clear understanding of the objective of the law of what you're trying to do, um, I think that's quintessential is be full circle. Think outside the box when it's because lawyers hire detectives to say, this is what I want to find out. Mm -hmm. Well, when you, you can't act that way when you're trying to talk to people, the more you can build a relationship with somebody Mm -hmm. and have an understanding of what really happened to them and where you really want to go with 
with um, the outcome, mm-hmm. it, it's it's really hard to explain. Um, I used to tell my detectives all the time, follow the evidence. The evidence mm-hmm. will set you free. Okay? okay. And my premise for my detective agency was not exoneration. Like, let me tell you that right off the bat. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. It was to build a fair case so that justice was served. Okay. And the conceptualization that people have today of justice is vindication. Okay. But that's mm-hmm. not what justice was actually set up to do. It was set up to um, allow people to be heard and allow restitution to be made. Okay. Mm -hmm. For the crime. And it was set up by the forefathers that everybody in the community juries was actually Mm -hmm. set up on a community basis. So the community had the right to come together and because when a criminal offends in a community, he's actually in theory, offended the entire community, not just Mm -hmm. the one person. So the community has the right to know and how to set an appropriate judgment. Okay. That's what the criminal justice system was initially set up for. But now we've turned to clearly nothing more than vindication. Nevertheless. Um, So it's not supposed to be about punishment then. Not always. No, it's supposed to be about restitution and something that's fair and equitable for all parties involved. But that's that's another hour talk because I'm a real big component on circle sentencing, and that's <laughs> that's much more than what we need to get. I'm getting off track. Sorry. Um, that's okay. So anyway, Eric, if you want to become a private investigator, I would recommend studying human nature, having an understanding of what people are about, and a realistic idea of of the law not what you think it is because so many people that I talk to today, well, that's illegal. You know, you can't do that. Well, and those examples are fleeting, you know, at at this point to what they could be. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times it's just an ethical or moral issue that they're discussing as being a a legal issue. And um, it's, you have to know the difference and have a level head, I guess, I think be able to be able to um, think quick on your feet, Mm -hmm. you know, and be prepared for anything. And when I used to train my detectives, I would tell them just pay attention to everything and don't throw away anything until you get it, get it down on paper and have a time to think about it because you, you're going to miss something if you don't. I know I'm not making much sense, but um, sure, sure. It sounds like you were saying to not draw a conclusion and try to match the facts to your conclusion, but rather to just go and find all the information you can collect it and analyze it later. Right. Because the evidence will lead you to the right conclusion. Okay. Now it's, is it fair to say that we do have a problem potentially in society um, even with law enforcement, et cetera, that we tend to jump to conclusions and then use confirmation bias to back up what we feel. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Everybody has bias. We've established that in our conversation. Sure. And the thing that people don't realize is you take those biases that you have into every environment, including your work environment. Okay. There have been shoot um, studies on um, shoot, don't shoot with cops. Okay. Right. And African-American officers and white officers have performed the same when the assailant was African-American and when the assailant was white. They Mm -hmm. both, both white and black cops have shot in scenarios, more black males than, than white males. And I, I am adamant in my belief that it is because of the stereotype that society sets for the African American and other marginalized populations. Yes. Okay. That you can, I believe, go back in history and find statistics that'll back that up with the Jewish community, Italian community, 
and um, other immigrant communities. Yeah, absolutely. To, to parallel that. So right. we could take race right out of the picture and just say, no, uh, in environments where there are biases or crimes or et cetera, that we tend to react in that way. Yeah. And we base our responses on conceptualizations that we have brought with us through our entire lives. Right. Okay. And then you get into law enforcement, you get white males, white females, black officers, black male officers, black female officers, everybody working together in that dynamic. Okay. Mm -hmm. Bringing their own biases. But then again, there's another community within those groups that mm -hmm. they're expected to conform to. And that's the community within the department and within right. law enforcement. So that brings in an entire new dynamic of how the attitudes and biases that people learn within those environments against the rest of the world and seeing the big problem within law enforcement, they have a me mentality of us against them. Right. And the longer you're in law enforcement, the more you're going to be, have that mentality. Mm -hmm. I, I can see that. I had that a little bit in the army. Right. You, you feel separate from society and some of that is intended. It is Within intended. It is, but I don't think it should be because law enforcement, the conceptualization of law enforcement was to be part of the community, know who they are protecting and know so they know who to watch and not watch type thing okay right. that was the early view of law enforcement you know well after 19 after well the idea of law enforcement from the north and the south are two different conceptualizations up north where it was industrial where they had the industrialized nations it was for protection and um what we're talking about okay and in mm -hmm. the south early jim crow it was to keep the black people in line for the slave owners you know mm -hmm. and i mean the conceptualization of law enforcement in this country is just all over the place so it's hard to break it down into one ideology that we're supposed to have about law enforcement, but it, it's law enforcement has unfortunately become the governmental tool of our country to where the political, um, the people that are in control of the politics at the time use the law enforcement to keep the rest of us in line based on their ideologies. So sure. um, anyway, sorry. Well, that's, that's fine. That's what we're discovering here. Now, speaking of these biases as a private investigator, um, how do you combat that? What tools can we use to check ourselves? Well, you know, that, and that's an interesting question um, because even as a scholar, you know, um, we have to be aware of our biases. And we talk about that early on in, in my undergrad work, um, and particularly now in my PhD work, we talk about that a great deal. And the only way that you can combat your biases is awareness. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's the first and foremost way. But the other way is to be open to criticism. Um, from other other scholars, other professionals, etc., because they're going to see your bias, and you're going to see their bias more quickly than you do. It's just human nature. But when someone starts to constructively criticize your bias or make you aware of it, we have a tendency mm -hmm. of putting up this wall and saying, "I don't want to hear it." Um, mm -hmm. But as a professional and as a scholar the one way to combat these biases is be aware of it. And when someone starts talking to you about your biases, have that conversation so that you can learn how you might be able to reduce that bias, you know, and, and um, when you start 
looking at a situation or as we do in, in um, research, I have to take a step back and say, okay, now this is my personal thought about X, Y, Z, but what is it really based on the empirical evidence that, right. that I see in, in previous studies? So um, it, that's a hard line to, to do because that's something that has to be done on a daily basis. Um, and people, they don't want to admit that they have biases. We lie so, to ourselves. So in some ways, we should almost seek out that conflict to test our own pet theories, to test how we feel. Like a, I believe you have to do a, a PhD defense, right? Yes, I do. I have to defend my dissertation. And isn't that kind of for this whole principle is to it see is. how well studied up you are, how, how do your ideas hold up when they're attacked by your peers or others? Absolutely. That's exactly the, the precept of that. Okay. So in real life, maybe not to that degree, maybe it's good to um, read material that goes against the grain or goes against what we believe. I would, I would say that. Yes. But the unfortunateness is in our society, people today tend to want to be led and not really care about doing their own research because everything's at their fingertip. They take everything that they see on Google being Yahoo as for granted without really researching to check the facts. And mm -hmm. I guess basically in our own personal lives, that's what we need to do. We need to check our, check our own moral code and, um, be aware of the biases that we have towards people, towards ideas, and be open to change those ideas, those realities and biases, I guess, when we can. But not everybody will do that. What's funny, I, what I'm trying to do, because I have my own biases and I know that, is through interviews like this and this podcast, it's a really neat opportunity. I'm getting to discuss ideas and stories with people of different backgrounds. And I kind of believe that all of our biases, as you call it, or everything else is, is from our life experience. Absolutely. And I try to be open to say, okay, he doesn't see things my way because he or she lived their life, not my life. Correct. So different things have happened there within their lives that help shape or color their perception. Absolutely. And that, and that's correct. That's a very, that's a correct assessment. We all have our own lives that we've lived and our, our reactions our bias or our thoughts are all premised off the lives that we've lived in the people that have, formed our lives for us that were around us as spheres of influences. Um, so you have to be aware of all that. Um, it was last December. Um, I got blocked into a parking lot by these two women and um, I got out of the car and I, one was going the wrong way and I got out of the car and I said, ma'am, I said, I can't move my car. You're coming down the wrong way. And the other person that's behind me blocked me in. So can you back up one, you know, two, the two ladies eventually got out of the car. I said, one mm -hmm. of you got to back up. I mean, cause I'm stuck. And, <laughs> and they both looked at me and they said, you're racist. <laughs> okay. I, I'm like, excuse me. And they're like, Yeah you're just telling us to move because we're black. And I'm like, no, ma'am, I'm telling you to move because you've got me blocked in and I can't go anywhere. Hmm. And so they did not like me because I asked them to do something. And I don't even know where the, the, you're racist came from. I, I really don't. And it bothered me so much that I had went to some of my friends and said, Am I, am I, do I have these biases that project that I don't like people of color and, and 
I mean, they said no, but at the same time, I know I was aggravated with these two women. So I could see how they would conceptualize that. Mm. And the, eventually the police ended up being called because one of them called the police that I threatened them. And I'm just standing there and the cop says, he goes, did you threaten them? And, and the, I'm a master Mason. And this guy's turned out was a Mason. Okay. And he was an officer of color. And I looked at him and I said, brother, I'm going to tell you right on the square. I just asked these ladies to move this car. And he goes, good enough for me. And he got them to back up the car. He didn't even understand what their problem was. And, mm. but I think it was because I was aggravated and I wasn't mm. being as pleasant as I had perceived. That makes sense. Okay. And had I been in their shoes, I probably would have thought the same damn thing. Hmm. So the approach can make a big difference. Oh, absolutely. You know, it can make a big difference. You know, take, um, take your dog. You have a dog. You have a dog, Eric. No, I have cats. Okay. Well, dog owners, they know this real well. You know, Mm -hmm. look at your dog and yell at the dog. I love you. Yell it. Right. And And then same dog. Five seconds later, say, oh, I love you. The right. reaction is the same, is different because of the words that you're sure. saying. You know, they're the same. So people are the same way. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, go jump off of the cliff. Go, go, go. Jump off the cliff. <laughs> right. <laughs> because they don't understand the words. They understand the tone. Totally, right. totally makes sense. Right. And that almost brings us into uh, back to the workplace violence. It, it, it seems to be becoming kind of chronic within the United States, especially. Yeah. People, our society is, is really in danger of just collapsing within itself. I mean, you have to, and I blame the criminal justice system for this because I think the last statistic I read was like one in eight families have somebody affected by either being incarcerated or on supervision and um, have one parent missing from the home because of it. You know, our legislators since the Civil War have enacted 440 new laws, federal laws, and 80% of them were enacted between 2012 to present time. Hmm. Um, and I mean, and they don't have, and most of those laws don't have what they, the Latin term is mens rea, where it means blameworthiness um, of the law. They're just being made because political um, people want to be elected, want to be reelected. So they tell their constituents, yes, we'll do this. We'll do that because mainstream in group, um, People want to live a life and conceptualize a society one way. And unfortunately, the outgroup, it becomes victim to that conceptualization. Um, Like case in point, you can go to the Grand Canyon, Mm -hmm. pick up a rock, put it in your pocket, Mm -hmm. take it home. (laughs) You commit a federal law. Yep. Ten years, felony. Mm Mm-hmm. And in fact, there was a singer that actually did that. I can't remember. Back in um, 80, 81, I think it was, uh, some guy that was some singer out in California had done exactly that and became a felon just from that act. I've, um, I believe there's a book out on that, too, where every one of us could be arrested at any time. We all break laws continuously. Oh, indeed. Absolutely. Our criminal justice system is just run amok. It's, um, it's over politicized. It's biased towards marginalized groups. And, and today I am so glad I'm not a criminal defense investigator. I I really am because these prosecutors, they want to make a name for themselves and, we have a let's make a deal criminal justice system because people come into court, they violate, and instead of 
using all the tools that they have in their quiver, judges and lawyers automatically jump to incarceration, supervision, and fine. You know, judges and prosecutors are in a position where they can actually take an individual and say, okay, listen, this is what's happened in your life. And it was because of this alcoholism, violence, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, mental illness, instead of locking you away and throwing away the key, let's get you court ordered into mental health awareness, um, um, seeing a counselor or alcohol um, counseling or drug counseling. Let's supervise Mm -hmm. you for six months on this platform to see where we go before we continue in the process. And they don't do it. Majority of the judges and lawyers just want the case to disappear and be done because society is so worried about how well the criminal justice system is working that it no longer works effectively. Um, Five years ago, the one country, Russia, okay, I'll just flat out say this, Russia incarcerated more people than any other country in the world. That was five years ago. Today, it's the good old United States. Yeah, I know we have more than China as a great example. Yep. And that's total. That's China with billions of people, and we have 300 million. Yeah. (laughs) We have more people incarcerated in our society than any other nation in the world. And that just, that flat out, Eric, sickens me, to be honest about it. Do you see a way out, though? Because I feel like we're starting to become more aware. It's, it's sort of like a, a cancer in the sense that you mentioned one out of eight families. Are we getting to the tipping point now where everyone knows somebody who's locked up or caught up in the system and therefore it's, it's starting to bring it home? It's bringing awareness. And I would say that's an accurate assessment. However, the, the majority of our society wants retribution they don't want restitution they don't want people to um come back out of jail they they, they've got a mentality of the old um you know we look when we were kids coming up you know on the playground you know Mm -hmm. bobby and johnny got into it they knocked each other out and that was the end of it okay Mm -hmm. And, but today it's like Bobby and Johnny get into it. Bobby and Johnny's friends get into it and nobody's willing to let it go. And it's been three years and Bobby and Johnny forgot about it and shook hands. Right. But everybody else is still fighting about it. That's what's going on in our society today. Nobody wants to break away, shake hands and forget about it. They all want to be angry. They all want to be, they all, they want to feel like they got revenge and, the only way for society like that is collapse. <laughs> okay. On that uplifting <laughs> note, uh, I guess we'll wrap things up because <laughs> you definitely put a pin in it. Um, now, how can people get a hold of you? Um, they can email me at um, Richard at Decker Criminology Advisors.com. Um, I can also be reached at, let me give you my company number cause I don't want to actually give out my cell number. <laughs> I mean, I have it out there, but well, that, it's on the site, right? Yeah, it's on the site and, um, Twitter, are you on Twitter? I'm or? on Twitter. I, I am on LinkedIn, obviously that's how you and I met. Um, and my office number is eight, four, three, seven, nine, zero, 3177. Um, but the best way to get a hold of me, obviously, is email. Uh, I'm on Instagram. I also have my own podcast on iHeart called The Socio Criminologist, and we are airing our f- first show of the new season this Friday. So, Excellent. So, you know, I have that going as well. But um, I'm not as good at it as what you are. I mean, I oh. thank you for asking me on this show. It was quite the experience to be here. And quite the honor. Thanks a lot for coming on. And it's neat finding out your uh, background. I think a lot of people wonder about private investigation and things like that and have really no idea other than TV.
Hey podcast fans, I'm Rachel, host of We're All Mad Here, a new podcast about the history of mental health. Do you love history? Do you love creepy stories of abandoned hospitals? How about questionable medical procedures? We're covering it all. Not only will we sneak around in old asylums, we'll talk about the patients that stayed there and what their lives were like. We're covering disorders, cures, and living life with mental illness. So come join us on We're All Mad here at allmadpod.com because the history of mental illness is insane. Mr. Hayes' office, how may I help you? Andrea, it's Marilyn over at Kennedy Parker Construction. Hello, Marilyn. Would you like me to connect Mr. Parker to Mr. A fish surrounded by sharks. A secretary cursed by desire and ambition. Introducing The Diarist by Donna Barrow Green. The Diarist, an addictive psychological thriller, satirical, suspenseful, and full of twists. Available on iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Yes. I'm sorry if I've hurt your feelings. Or if something I've said has led you to believe I think you're incompetent. It's just been so long since you've given me any encouragements or compliments on my... Andrea. I do notice you. I like that blouse on you very much. You look very pretty just as you are right now. Oh, well, I... It's very pretty on you. Thank you. What sort of fabric is it? It's silk. It's lovely. You have excellent taste in clothes. I notice. Would you mind removing your cardigan? My sweater? Yes, so I can see the blouse in its entirety. Why? I like it very much. You see, I do notice you. You know that, don't you? I don't have to tell you I notice these things. You know when I like something, don't you? I don't know. I repeated his words in my mind. I notice you. That was it, wasn't it? I wanted someone to notice me. Not Andrea the daughter, the wife, the secretary. Not even Andrea the artist or ad girl. I wanted someone, anyone, to see me. More than anything, it was Richard. Please don't think unkind of me, dear reader. Mm -hmm.